Well, today in our scripture, we're going to talk about dogs. Did you know that Jesus talks about dogs in the Bible? So in Matthew chapter 7, verses 6, verse 6, he says, Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Oops. And do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Oh boy, I think I, I think I didn't obey God's word here. I think I gave to dogs what is sacred. Oh, there he goes. <laughs> well, guys, this is what we're going to be talking about this week. Um, and let me, let me explain to you what it means. So when I graduated from college, I went to go live in a country called China. And China is very, very far um, across a lot of ocean. <laughs> and um, I went there so that I could tell college students about Jesus. That was my job. And I loved my job. And I got a lot of opportunities to do that. Um, we got to hang out and spend time with a lot of college students. But there was one big problem. In China, it's very, very helpful for your career if you learn English. So Chinese students from the time that they're very, very, very little to the time that they graduate and, and start in the in their jobs in the business world, they always learn English. And so they always want opportunities to practice their English. So when they see someone who looks like they're from America, they said, oh, I want to practice my English with you. So remember, what was our job? Our job while we were there was to share the good news of Jesus. So if I spent all of my time teaching people English, I wouldn't be able to do my actual job. So it was very important for me to ask good questions and to see whether these students were actually interested in God and the things of God, or if they just wanted an opportunity to practice their English. So... How does that tie into what we're talking about today? How does it tie into a dog that's wearing all these jewels? So here's the point that Jesus was making. We are entrusted with some beautiful treasures as Christians. We are entrusted with the word of God. We're entrusted with the Holy Spirit. And we're entrusted with the community of God. And we need to make sure that we are giving those things to people who are actually wanting to receive them. So all of us have limits on our time, right? We all have limits on our time, on our friendships or relationships. We can only do so much. So we have to choose how we're going to spend our time. And what Jesus is saying, don't take things that are precious, that are treasures, and give them to people who are going to treat them badly. Just like Bentley didn't take good care of that crown, I need to make sure that I am giving God's word to people who are going to listen to it and who are going to value it and treasure it. So I want you to think about this week, who can I share God's word with? Um, maybe it's at school, maybe it's a soccer team, maybe it's with a neighbor. Remember, this is our treasure, right? And so we need to share our treasure with people who are going to uh, receive it well and value it. So who can you share your treasure with this week? And make sure that you go and do that. Okay, so Bentley and I thank you so much for listening and for being here. And we hope that you have a great week. And now I'm going to be talking to you in the big sermon.
All right. Well, let's pray before we dig in here to God's word. Heavenly Father, I come to you as your child. I am your daughter, and you have called me beloved, not because I've earned it, but because it has been given to me and guaranteed by Christ. So I come to you, Father, and I ask you that your spirit would speak to us now and would speak through me now. I know that I have nothing to say that can change any hearts, but God, your spirit does. And so we invite him to do that work now. Would you speak to our hearts? Would you show us yourself more clearly, that we would see ourselves more clearly, and that we would respond in worship and in love? May you fill this time and may it please you. In Christ's name, amen. What is your favorite part of the Thanksgiving meal? Is it the sweet potato casserole, the turkey, the pumpkin pie? I want you to imagine this chapter in Matthew today as a Thanksgiving meal. Now, it's a long chapter, and it can feel like a bunch of side dishes, So we're going to work our way through it just like a Thanksgiving dinner, just a little bit at a time. Each section functions as a different side. By themselves, they're good. But together, they make a full, wonderful meal. And don't worry, we will definitely get dessert before we leave. So let's dive into the first side dish, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says here, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, oh, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. And do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, we start on a really happy positive note, which is with the idea of judgment. Now, our culture can really flip-flop on how they view judgment. On the one hand, we're told not to be judgmental. Don't have judgy eyes or a judgy expression. And on the other hand, we are seeing the rise of cancel culture. People, brands, TV shows being dismissed outrightly because of what they did, said, or endorsed that was something that the culture viewed as unforgivable. So when Jesus says here, do not judge, it might feel confusing to us. What is he actually saying? Now, all people do, of course, make judgments every day. We have to judge whether we have enough room to pass another car on the road, whether our milk is still good to drink or we need to throw it away, whether a certain TV show is worth our time to watch, and so on and so forth. Judgments are necessary, and they can be good. It shows good judgment, in fact, when you don't skip and line in Kroger. The theologian Douglas Sean O'Donnell puts it this way. When the Lord Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged, 
He didn't mean what our culture means when people presume to borrow this phrase. Jesus' command does not mean that we are never to make an exclusive theological judgment or offer a moral corrective that is based on God's word. The type of judgment that Jesus is talking about here is very particular. He uses the word krino. The Greek word krino means to separate, to pick or choose, to condemn, to call into question, to subject to censure or to dispute. This word has a legal implication to it. It's as if Jesus is warning us not to act as judge and jury for others. Why? Because there is only one judge overall, one who sees all, who knows all, and who understands perfectly. There is only one judge who is capable of judging justly. And we are not to presume to take his judge's seat, to put on his judge's robe, or to pick up his judge's gavel. Now, did you catch what Jesus says in verse 2? In the same measure that you judge others, you yourself will be judged. Now, when the pastoral staff met to discuss this passage, I said that I wanted God to use the tiniest measuring spoon in the drawer when he judges me. And for those of you who bake, is one sixteenth of a teaspoon even a thing? Because when it comes to God's judgment, that's what I want him to use. But if I want God to judge me liberally, mercifully, and gently, what does he say that I must do? I must apply the same liberality, the same mercy, and the same gentleness to others. Why? Because it will mean that I have truly understood and experienced God's grace to me in Christ. Okay, so let's unpack that last thought. Let's sit there for a second. One of the teaching functions of grace is that it shows me that I break God's law a thousand times a day. Grace allows me to see and to not be undone by my own sin. It allows me to look honestly at my sin without becoming overwhelmed or feeling condemned by it. In fact, it's what Jesus alludes to in this next part of the sermon. The log in our own eye is our unconfessed, undealt with sin. Now, isn't it ironic that somehow it's easy for us to glaze over our own mistakes, our shortcomings and our failures, essentially our own sin, but then we can nitpick the smallest things when it comes to others. Do you ever find yourself judging others? It might look like this. You see other people's actions as emblematic of their own person. For example, they did something bad or wrong, so therefore they must be bad or wrong. The problem with that is this. No one is either all bad or all good. We are complex. Do you justify your criticism as the truth? The problem with that is that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we are told to speak the truth in love. Do you expect perfect consistency from others? The problem with that is that no one is perfectly consistent. We are complex and we are hypocritical. Do you jump to conclusions? 
Here's the problem. You're assuming the worst of others and not giving any benefit of the doubt or asking questions. You assume that you know everything. Do people not share with you? The problem with that is that Christians should be trustworthy and we should be able to offer hope and healing through Christ. Do you often tell others how they can fix or improve things? The problem with that is that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He doesn't come to accuse, criticize, or hurt us. He comes to grow and to heal us. Is your feedback producing fruit, good fruit? If it's not, then it might be time to stop giving it. So let's see what this looks like in real life. Now, I forgot the prop that I brought today, but just imagine that I have a huge stuffed log with me. Imagine this, this log in front of my eye going up to Pastor Drew and saying, Now, Pastor Drew, you have an eyelash in your eye. Let let me just get that out for you, okay? What do you think you would say if you're Pastor Drew? No way. I don't want you anywhere near my eyes. You can't see with that thing in your eyes. You will cause more harm then you will good. Jesus is saying to us, unless and until you've dealt with your own sin, leave other people's sin to God, who can and does see clearly and can safely remove it for them. Billy Graham famously says, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. Or in other words, don't try to be someone else's Holy Spirit. He's got the job handled and he doesn't need your help. He might occasionally ask for your help, but until he does, assume that he's got it handled. So what size measuring spoon are you using to evaluate others? Are you using one sixteenth of a teaspoon or are you using a soup ladle? Remember, You get what you give. If you want to get grace from others, you must give it as well. Now, the last part of this passage, verses 7 through 12, we already talked about in the children's sermon. So we're going to move on here to the next side dish. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now with Christmas quickly approaching, I'm sure that you're making and seeing lots of wish lists. A swanky new bicycle, an air fryer that can do 27 different things, the latest book in that Can't Stop Reading It series, noise-canceling headphones, Wine of the Month Club subscriptions, It never stops. Americans have an exceptional capacity for wanting things. But is this what Jesus is talking about here? 
Is he saying that God is your fairy godfather here to grant all your wishes and to give you every desire of your heart? Or is he introducing a new self-help method where you just speak your dreams into existence, the power of positivity? While positivity is, in fact, powerful, that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. Now, I want you to notice two key words in this passage, good and father. Jesus talks about good gifts, saying that if earthly fathers who are plagued with selfishness and sin are still capable of giving good gifts to their children, how much more capable is God? Jesus also refers to God as our father in heaven. Here is the really hard part. We do not get to be the ones to define what is good. Often things are good in God's economy that seem far from it in ours. Suffering, persecution, and even sickness can produce good fruit in us. Some might even call them gifts. Joni Erickson Tata is one such person. Here has, here's her story in her own words. For years, I was one who insisted handicaps happen to other people, not me. But all of that changed on a hot July afternoon in 1967 when my sister Kathy and I went to the beach on the Chesapeake Bay for a swim. The water was murky, and I didn't bother to check the depth when I hoisted myself onto a raft. I dove in, and I instantly felt my head hit something hard. My neck snapped, and I felt a strange electrical shock. Underwater and dazed, I felt myself floating, unable to surface for air. Thankfully, Kathy noticed my plight and quickly came to the rescue. When she pulled me out of the water, I saw my arm slung over her shoulder, and yet I couldn't feel it. I knew then that something awful had happened. Later at the hospital, I learned that I had severed my spinal cord and would be left a quadriplegic for the rest of my life. I was devastated. Lying in that hospital, I recalled that just months earlier, I had asked God to draw me closer to his side. Now stuck in bed, I wondered if my paralysis was his idea of an answer to that prayer. If this was the way that he treated new Christians... How could he ever be trusted with another prayer again? Now, obviously, God's ways were far different than mine. And for a long time, that idea both frightened and depressed me. But where else could I turn? To whom else could I go? I remember praying, God, if I cannot die, then teach me how to live. Many days afterward, I would sit in front of a Bible, holding a mouth stick between my teeth, to use to flip the pages, praying that God would help me put together the puzzle pieces of my suffering. And rather than try to frantically escape the pain, I relearned the timeless lesson of allowing my suffering to push me deeper into the arms of Jesus. I'd like to think of my pain as a sheepdog that keeps snapping at my heels to drive me down the road of Calvary, where otherwise... I would not naturally be inclined to go. Now, most of us will never have a story like Joni's, 
But it's still important for us to understand that God's gift, God's gifts often do not come from our Amazon wish lists. God's gifts are good because they are given for our good from the one who knows what we truly need. Have you ever thought back to something that you asked God for and said, whew, I am so glad that God did not give me that thing. Maybe it was a love interest, a job, a new car, an acceptance letter from a particular school. Time and experience helped you to see that that thing wasn't actually what you needed. So, can we truly trust God to give us what's best, knowing that the promise of Romans 8.28 guides his hand in every single thing he does? It says this, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do your actions show that you believe that? If I ask the people who are closest to you in your life, would they say that you believe that? You guys remember Joseph from the Bible? He was that guy in the Old Testament with a technicolor dream coat. If you want, you can go back and read his story later today. It's found in Genesis 37 to 50. Now, Joseph's life seemed anything but good. He was beaten by his own brothers, tossed into a well, sold into slavery, shipped off to a foreign country, falsely accused, sexually harassed, thrown into jail, and essentially abandoned by everyone he knew and loved and trusted. His circumstances, by all accounts, looked anything but good. And yet he is able to say to his brothers in the end, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Genesis fifty twenty. And then there was Abraham. Do you remember him? You might have sung a song when you were little. Father Abraham had many sons. Well, he wasn't always Father Abraham. His name in Hebrew literally means exalted father. But at 99 years old, he sat childless, abandoned by his nephew in the middle of a foreign land, looking up at the stars while God promised to make him a great nation. For 99 years, he was called by the name of exalted father, while he could not even father one single child with his wife, Sarah. His circumstances, by all accounts, looked anything but good. And yet, at the close of his life, we're told in Genesis 24, 1, Now Abraham was very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. What about you? Do you believe that what God has given you is intended for your good? Do you believe that your marriage, your job, your family, your finances, your mental health, your dating life, your school, your friendships, your housing are all God's good gifts to you? Ask and it will be given to you, Jesus said. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. 
Our good and loving Heavenly Father stands on the other side of that door, ready to open it, ready to receive you, and ready to give you only what he knows is good for you, because he always gives good gifts. C.S. Lewis, in the beginning of his book, The Chronicles of Narnia, tells us that Narnia was always winter, but never Christmas. Can you imagine that? Always winter, but never Christmas. Now, when the curse of the white witch is finally broken, Father Christmas is able to return to Narnia. He rides his sleigh up to the Pevensey children, and he starts pulling gifts out. At first, his children, the children are disappointed because they're not given toys or other fun things that they want. But Father Christmas explains to them that his gifts are meant to help them in the upcoming battle that they would have to fight. These gifts are essential things. They were carefully and purposefully chosen. For what purpose? For the children's good. So I'll ask you again, do you believe that everything that God gives you is for your good? This passage is meant to help us to see more clearly, to see ourselves more clearly, to see others more clearly, and to see God himself more clearly. I hope, I hope that it will accomplish that for you. Let's move on now to our next side dish, which is found in verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruits, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, we have all heard this phrase before, wolves in sheep's clothing. It's used by non-Christians every day, and the meaning still translates. It refers to someone that looks innocent or safe, like a lamb, but that has actually disguised themselves. They only appear good or safe on the outside. Inwardly, their true self is dangerous and deadly, just like a wolf. Now, do you remember that old children's story, Little Red Riding Hood? In this story, a wolf dresses up like Red's grandmother, seemingly innocent, safe, and benign. But after sitting with grandmother for a little while, Little Red Riding Hood begins to notice some small differences. Grandmother, your voice sounds so odd. Is something the matter? Oh, I just have a touch of the cold, squeaked the wolf, adding a cough at the end to prove his point. But grandmother, what big ears you have, said Little Red Riding Hood as she edged closer to the bed. Oh, the better to hear you with, my dear, replied the wolf. But grandmother, what big eyes you have, said Little Red Riding Hood. The better to see you with, my dear, replied the wolf. But grandmother, what big teeth you have said Little Red Riding Hood, her voice quivering slightly. And we all know what happened from there. What this story reminds us of is that wolves in sheep's clothing cannot disguise themselves forever. 
There will be sufficient evidence to see them for who they really are if you are looking carefully. We live in an age of many false prophets. From the prosperity gospel, which says that God only wants you to be healthy and wealthy. To tacking on extra requirements for salvation, like speaking in tongues, doing penance, practicing spiritual disciplines, avoiding certain things like dancing, alcohol, makeup. To universalism, which says that all roads lead to God. There is false teaching everywhere we look. I love the French theologian John Calvin. He does not ever mince words, and he certainly doesn't mince words when he writes about this passage. He says, we know we have a strong propensity to falsehood, so that we not only have a natural desire to be deceived, but each individual appears to be ingenious in deceiving himself. Hebrews 5.14 similarly tells us, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Good and evil are distinguishable. It is possible to tell true biblical teaching from false heretical teaching that either adds to or takes away from God's word. But not without practice. You see, a tree is known by its fruit. So look at the fruit. Ask the Holy Spirit, who is our fruit producer, to help you to see others' fruit for what it truly is. Are they producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? And is their teaching helping others to produce the same fruits? Stay away from bad or rotten fruit. It will only make your heart and mind sick. All right, we're getting close. I hope you saved a little room because we are finally at dessert. Here is our last part of the chapter. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell with a great crash. I love this last picture that Jesus gives us. He describes a terrible squall that comes to a beach community. There are two houses. One is built on the sand and the other is built on the rock. Only one will survive. Now here's why I love this picture. Jesus is saying to us, the storms, friends, they will come. Hardships in this life are unavoidable. Until Jesus returns to set all things right, there are times when things will go wrong. Brothers and sisters, what have you built your house on? What is your foundation? Do you know the promises of God backwards and forwards? Do you know his character, that he is good, loving, steadfast, faithful, wise, 
and purposeful. If not, when the storms of life come, and they will come, you will be tossed and turned and your faith will not survive. Only those who have built their faith on Jesus Christ himself will have a sure foundation. Not the good things you've done, not the money you've given away, not how kind you are, not the trash you've picked up, not the meals you've delivered, not the times that you've listened to someone share their problems. When the storms of life hit, those things, though good, will prove to be a shallow, weak foundation. True faith is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. That is what is going to support and strengthen and hold us fast when the storms of life come. And it bears repeating, they will come. So what is your faith resting on today? We have come to the very last words here of Matthew 7. It's the icing on our cake. It's the whipped cream on your pumpkin pie. Verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus had a better word, better than all the scribes, all the teachers, the temple leaders. Jesus had a better word because Jesus was the word. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus taught with authority because he knew the mind and heart of God. He knew the unchangeable, unassailable, unmistakable character of God. It was his foundation, his lifeblood, his compass. It guided everything he said, everything he did, everywhere he went, everyone he spoke to. Every last detail of his life was crafted by God's eternal truth. Tim Keller asked this poignant question. If Jesus didn't think that he could handle life without knowing the scripture inside and out, what makes you think you can? I'm going to say that one more time. If Jesus didn't think that he could handle life without knowing the scripture inside and out, what makes you think you can? Read his word, friends. Know his word. Love his word. It will help you to see more clearly. It will teach you where and how to spend your treasure. It will help you be thankful for all of the gifts that he's given you. It will help you to discern what is good and right and true. And it will help you to weather the storms of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen.